and welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation, and many more. Today's guest is Fleur Newman. She has always been motivated to pursue a career where she can contribute to making our societies even more sustainable. She currently leads the work on a gender and climate change agenda item under the Climate Change Convention, UNFCCC, and is a gender focal point and the focal point for women at the UNFCCC Secretariat. Her background is in climate change, sustainable development, energy, and international law, and in advocating for gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls. I'm Keith Manyan, and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Fleur. Welcome to our show. Can you take us through your career arc? Your background is in law. When did you get started on your climate journey? Thanks, Katie, for the opportunity to, to speak with you today. And it's interesting because actually I started on my climate journey before I started on my law journey. So I actually did a Bachelor of Science in Sustainable Development before then doing a law degree and I became an environmental lawyer. And my interest in the law was always in relation to climate and, and sustainable development. So it was worked in private practice, energy and, and environment field, and then also did a lot of work pro bono for the Legal Response Initiative which is a pro bono initiative that supported least developed countries in real time during climate negotiations. And through all of that, there was always an opportunity to work on gender equality and women's empowerment issues as well. Right. And I want to kind of break this part down. Can you tell us more about your role in the UNFCCC and what is it about your role that makes it so challenging? Oh, or maybe also relates to what are the kind of challenges you face in accomplishing your role? Sure. So my role at the UN Climate Change Secretariat, we're a secretariat to a treaty body. So we're not not a UN implementing entity. And so my role primarily is to support parties as they negotiate decisions and action on climate change under the gender and climate change agenda item under the convention. And this is a, an agenda item that focuses solely on the issues of gender and climate change. And the role of the Secretariat, in addition to supporting countries during the negotiation time, is also to facilitate and catalyse action between the meetings. And we do that by connecting non-party stakeholders, what we call non-party stakeholders, so those who are not governments, organisations, private sector, civil society, sort of bringing them together in, in different forums and connecting them so that the work that they're doing is more coherent. We have an overview because we, we see and what lots of different organisations and, and countries and civil society are doing and so that it provides us with an opportunity then to make those connections and to advocate and, and coordinate some action. And in terms of what makes that role both interesting and challenging is that there still is a fairly low awareness, and I would say this is not just within sort of ministries and countries, but also more broadly in organisations on the nexus between gender and climate change and, and why those two things are connected and what links them. So quite often organisations or even 
governments will have work that's happening on gender and work that's happening on climate change, but not necessarily bringing those two things together. So that awareness is, is certainly challenging, but also the speed at which we need to be doing everything on climate change is a challenge. I think the bit which you mentioned about just generating that awareness, and I think my next question is really about that. You know, you, you talk about statistics and they typically tell the story, especially when we consider gender balancing in all aspects of negotiations and decision making. And you, you use the stat of the UN Climate Change Conference, COP24, which happened in 2018, and that only 38% represent, representation of women. And this is only a 1% increase in the previous year. So what steps then do you think governments need to take for this to actually kind of manifest? And where does the Lima work program on gender feature in all this? Yes, this is a, a persistent problem. And that, that doesn't seem to have, have had a lot of change, certainly not in the delegations. What we have seen is some change, although not consistent, in the decision-making and technical bodies, the gender comp composition in those under the convention. But in the delegations, we're not seeing very much change from year on year. And th there's been a technical paper uh, prepared under the, under the convention on, on how to achieve greater gender balance. But the reality is this is an international forum. And what we need to see is change at, a, at the national level in order for that to flow on into the international level. There are steps that some countries have taken in terms of being more deliberate about ensuring that there is consistent uh, equal representation. And one of the things that the Lima Work Program and the Gender Action Plan do is that they, there's a priority area on women's participation and leadership because it's not just about being in a delegation, it's also ensuring that women are represented equally in the decision-making forums within the convention. And so there is a priority area on that and that, that there are activities under that that focus on the what it takes to, to move the needle. And, and that includes things like travel support and capacity building and ensuring that women are have mentors and there's junior negotiators are mentored through the process because it's complex and it's it can be very challenging when you're a junior and particularly when you're a female junior negotiator. So there are a number of things that are happening and the Gender Action Plan recognises that this is still a challenge, but it's definitely something that needs attention and, and deliberate action. So one question I have with regard to this is, in, in your experience, is this a problem of LDCs versus developed countries, or is this a generic problem that stretches across both kind of sets? Yeah, there is no country in the world that that has got gender equality and, and women's <laughs> empowerment sorted. <laughs> it is unfortunate, but it is definitely not a developing country issue. And in fact, there are many developing countries who have put in place legislation at a national level which has seen changes in terms of gender equality. And so, no, it, this is something that is not unique to any one part of the world. And even countries that are sort of traditionally seen as, as being very forward in gender equality, that doesn't necessarily translate all the time into equal representation. And of course, equal representation doesn't necessarily ensure that you're also going to get actually gender responsive climate policy, but it's a very important part of it. Can you break down the different areas in which women are typically affected by climate change? 
Sure. This was also the subject of a technical paper under the process, was looking at what we refer to as the differentiated impacts of climate change on women and men. And what the report shows is also consistent with what was in the IPCC's fifth assessment report on vulnerabilities. That differentiation is based on, in fact, pervasive historical and existing inequalities and what's referred to as multidimensional social factors rather than in relation to biological sex. And that means that it's based on gender, but also uh, discrimination based on other things such as class and or ethnicity, age or disability. And in fact, women may have a multitude of disadvantages as a result of their age and gender or their uh, disability or their ethnicity. But what it also means is that men who who may be discriminated against because of one of those other factors, there's also potential differentiated impacts. But for women, it tends to be around things like the fact that there are differences in laws of women and men owning assets and their access to finance, and that includes things like insurance. If you don't have assets to insure, then you're not as resilient after climate events like floods and, and hurricanes. But it's also things like access to education or training, the just transition to a green economy is not necessarily going to include women unless in what would be seen as non-traditional areas of employment like engineering in the renewable energy sector, but also access to public information. So who is actually receiving information on climate, whether it's the policy and planning or whether it's early warning systems, there are ways in which women are disadvantaged because they don't have the same access to technology or they don't have the ability to use that technology. There are, in fact, multitude of, of areas in which women, the existing inequalities will exacerbate, are exacerbated by climate impacts. Sounds uh, a hard, challenging, and I feel like the deck is already stacked against us in that sense. Then there are pre-existing factors that hit you, and then there's there's new stuff that comes at you. So you know you you kind of get bogged down by how you're supposed to react to events that are affecting you. And and talking about somebody is coming from a, an area of privilege, right? Like so you have access yes. to education, access to technology, and whatnot. But you're talking about somebody who is marginalized and is poor. Then how does that reaction happen? I have to say, Flo, I'm sorry, but your work sounds very frustrating. Like in the sense that you're kind of <laughs> you're kind of breaking your head against a wall, and the wall sometimes cracks, but not very often. Am I right in my assumption? <laughs> it's interesting because yes, uh, there are times when it is frustrating, but I also think that there is this enormous opportunity because we are in this moment in time where we are having to really rethink our economies and our societies, this is an opportunity for us to make real change. And not least because climate policy and action is more effective when you take into account these and address through the climate policy and action these existing barriers. So yes, there are frustrations, but also there is a a very broad community of people working in this area and they're always inspiring and, and there's a lot of energy because there is 
a recognition that this is also an opportunity. So uh, trying to get to kind of more positive things, you know, we've established that women seem to bear the brunt of climate change. Can you give us some specific examples regarding resilience in terms of gender and climate change? Maybe perhaps focusing on the Indian subcontinent? Sure. And and I really do think that there are a lot of examples out there. We would like a lot more, but there, there are some out there already. And one of the, the networks that we engage with is, is the Sustainable Energy for All's People-Centred Accelerator, which is looking at how to accelerate clean energy to last mile last mile citizens and there's a Ajayita Shah who's the chief executive officer of Frontier Markets and, and a member of that network has found a way to empower rural women through training training them to use and to sell clean energy technologies and there was a lot of work that was done in preparation for that working out at a regional level in Rajasthan what it takes in order for for women to be able to engage in this work and then to support them in doing so. So through the training, but also through, and that training was not just on renewable energy, but it was also on how to create businesses and, and maintain them. And that particular initiative has built a network of over 5,000 entrepreneurs, 70% of whom are women and doing work that they would not otherwise have done and delivering renewable energy to last mile segment of the consumer market. And the business model was specifically designed to ensure that women could contribute to to this solution. And I think there in which, and it's an important point that um, for in order for gender responsive policy and action to actually be gender responsive, it needs to engage the women who are actually impacted and affected because projects are done and there's assumptions are made at times about without actually ensuring that women are engaged in the planning and the development of the policy and action. And we see that the, the downside of that when it happens, but when it's done properly, there's any number of examples of, of good results. So having women, empowering women in that sense is extremely important to the whole process, actually, you know, coming out successful in the other end, so to speak. Come to this example of uh, climate finance. How can this be used as a tool to help women? And do you have any specific examples? This is the one area in which I think, in addition to, to gender balance, really needs more targeted attention. What we know is that that climate finance We have evidence that climate finance is not being equally distributed, but it's also the data is not necessarily as comprehensive as we'd like because it's not necessarily being disaggregated by by sex. But we also have a lot of anecdotal and qualitative information about the fact that there are barriers to accessing climate finance because of the scale sometimes. So trying to provide finance at a smaller scale than is is offered through the multilateral development banks, for instance. And one of the ways in which to address that, the Adaptation Fund has done very well in providing a direct access methodology that that really does, in fact, support more of those sort of community-based finance projects, which are often led by women. But there's also a need for the finance to be 
there's also gender lens investing, but this goes back to the, the question of people understanding the connection between gender equality and climate and ensuring that, in fact, climate, a climate lens is being applied to gender lens investing, for instance, and making sure that there is sufficient variety in the way in which the funding is, is provided. There's a need for patient capital in this space because it's not necessarily going to, well, it's definitely not going to happen overnight, the transformations that are needed. And there's also a need for sort of blended finance that provides safety nets and is able to provide the grant fund funding that's needed as well as debt financing. But it's it's a critical component of ensuring that we actually get gender-responsive climate policy in action. And what role do you think informed climate activism has played in empowering vulnerable women in the climate change movement? I think in any area of gender equality and women's empowerment, the importance of activism at the, the through women's associations and feminist groups and, and local community is critical because it, it tends to be more inclusive than other potentially aspects of climate action. And in fact, investing in women's associations and local community groups is key, is also key to to achieving gender-responsive climate policy and action. And I think it creates spaces in which women in vulnerable situations are able to, to engage at a local level potentially or in ways that are culturally or doable because it's within reach from a local perspective and but this is still again an area in which I think more could be done. Can you give me an example of what more do you think should be done? Again I think there's there's a need to support women's associations so and help them to also understand what they can contribute to the climate movement. I think this is an area where being able to to build up their capacities to support local and, and regional governments in the planning of climate policy and action, it does actually require some support and investment in those associations. All of this sounds very, um, I don't want to say, it's not complex. It's all simple stuff that needs to be done, but just looking at it, kind of from the climate change lens and saying, you know, this is work that we can associate with climate change and this is things that are going to be beneficial for us and for society in the long run. Which comes to my next question, actually. Like, what kind of expectations do you have from COP26 when it happens in 2021? In terms of gender, the big year was last year in in the agreement on the five-year Lima Work Programme and Gender Action Plan. So, that sort of has moved more into implementation. And so what we would want to see, certainly this year in the lead up to COP26, obviously we need parties to submit robust nationally determined contributions. And we would want to see more of those, including gender as a a cross-cutting element. And that there's also a a focus on finance for COP26. And again, this is an area in which we would want to see the issue of of gender and women's empowerment, women's and girls' empowerment, being mainstreamed into discussions on climate finance. The extent to which that happens is 
another thing, but those would be our hopes for for COP26 and to to also start to see a sharing of experience of those countries that have already started on the path to gender responsive NDCs, because I think part of this is also understanding how this is done and being able to see the examples of, of where it's being done either well or learning the lessons from where it has been challenging is an important part of our process. Based on your years of experience in this field with regard to the current climate crisis, do you think we have reached a tipping point? A tipping point in terms of where countries are, uh, countries and and society more generally on climate? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, if we maybe if we focus on gender policy in that sense, uh, uh, is that have we even reached a point where we can say, you know, I assume it's I would call it a work in progress rather. <laughs> yes, it's definitely a work in progress. <laughs> but I would say that we have reason to be cautiously optimistic. We have seen a change in the way in which this topic is discussed within the climate process over the last, particularly the last five years. And in my view, there is a deeper understanding or an understanding which has more depth and breadth than there was, say, five years ago. And it was interesting to see that, for instance, in the generation equality, the celebration of Beijing plus 25 this year, which has also been postponed until till next year, one of the six areas were was a feminist action for climate justice. And five years ago in that space, we wouldn't have seen a focus on climate in that space. So I do think that there has been a shift in the way in which it's being thought about and being incorporated. We're seeing more being done at a, at a sort of more economy-wide basis through NDCs and not just in, in projects. So yeah, I, I do think whether it's a tipping point or we're sort of about to see, yeah, maybe it is a tipping point. We're about to see an explosion of activity in this area. And that I do think that with more experience being shared on the effectiveness and the way in which it can support countries in raising ambition on climate change, then I think that it will, you know, feed on itself. Do you personally have heroes in the climate movement? Someone you look up to, for instance? Uh, I have lots. <laughs> maybe I mean, a, maybe are... a top, top three. Top three. How about that? <laughs> a lot of the the work that we've done on uh, gender balance and also participation uh, at grassroots, we did we worked with Mary Robinson and the, the Mary Robinson Foundation, and she's definitely a, a hero. And there are others who are working in through the women and gender constituency that I see working, and, and I wouldn't want to narrow that down because there are a lot. So the UNFCCC Women and Gender Constituency is, a, is an association of different grassroots and civil society and NGO activists and organisations that support countries and, you know, they're doing a lot of work with uh, very little resources and and achieving amazing things. Any last words for our listeners? What would you like to leave us with? I think that my point about this being, whilst it's definitely challenging, it's 
an opportunity. We are at a moment in time where we can, and taking into account the, the, the current crisis as well, we can recover from this particular global crisis with policies that are not only climate aware, but they're also gender aware and, and we can and we should be pushing our governments and the business sector and our civil society colleagues to be ambitious on this. I certainly hope that happens. <laughs> Thank you so very much for your insights, Fleur. I think our listeners have learned a lot about how gender connects with climate change and hopefully this you know, gives food for thought to organizations and, and people working in this area to do more. So thanks again. Thank you.